They don't have guests, they have contestants. 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt is the perfect game show and talk show hybrid that you need. Check out 10 Questions exclusively on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Whether it's taking all your little ones to their sporting events or everybody getting together and taking a ride to the beach, the all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped for any adventure. With features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or... Standard third row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Hello and welcome to Group Chat, the Ringer's weekly NBA group discussion where I say this respectfully, but I've dominated the matchup with Charks since I got to the league. I am Justin Verrier. Joining me today, that man, Jonathan Sharks. Well, when you're the boss, I guess, right? You get to dominate matchups. You can set it up how you want, you know, with the lineups. It, this is kind of like the Obama Springsteen uh, experience then. I'm the boss. Uh, also joining us today, Rob Mahoney. What I would not give to watch Justin try to post up Sharks right now. <laughs> it would be not pretty. I would always say my game is kind of like a, a Chuck Hayes type. I was basically a back to the basket point guard in, in height. So <laughs> I was gonna say I'll, I figured you was a pick and pop kind of player. Not really. No shot. No shot whatsoever. But you put me down low, man. I'm I'm ready to just do a soft layup over somebody. Um, today we're gonna talk about some. Well, this is uh, convenient. No power rankings is is the theme of this podcast, which goes hand to hand with my particular game. Uh, we're gonna run through some of the worst situations in the league today. But first, we're going to start off with a team that might actually be on this list. I'm curious to see who's on your guys' list. But uh, the Atlanta Hawks fired Lloyd Pierce uh, yesterday after three years or two and a half more in Atlanta. Uh, Not really a surprise, uh, especially to Pierce, who talked to The Athletic, I believe, last week and was basically like, yeah, Travis Schlang's going to fire me and uh, I'm not going to be mad about it. But uh, I think it's a, you know, it's a weird decision, especially considering some of the things the Hawks have gone through this year. Rob, what do you think about this one? Do you think there was merit to fire Pierce or is he really not the guy to blame here? Well, I think the reason they're not going to be a part of our no power rankings is the reason Pierce is getting fired, right? Like the fact that there are expectations around this team, that they have conceivable talent, that they have players that if healthy, at least they would be able to put together. That's the reason he's getting fired. You know, this is the bill for all of their offseason spending coming due. The crummy part of that is that Pierce wasn't the one cutting those checks. And he's certainly not the one who's at fault for the fact that these guys have been injured. 
I mean, really, when you go down the list of all the players they added in the offseason, those are all the guys who have been out. So this is really kind of a rerun of last year's team, but with Clint Capella, but with some, you know, some of the guys who were in and out of the lineup last year as more mainstays, you know, minus DeAndre Hunter, who's been so crucial. So it, it's kind of a tough break for me in, in terms of Pierce getting fired here. I don't know that I would put the blame at his feet, but when you're a disappointing team, that, that's the kind of pressure that usually comes down. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the life of a coach in the NBA in a lot of ways. And so I've got to give a shout out to Rick Carlisle. So he's the president of the Coaches Association. And the running joke in like Mavs media circles is whenever a coach gets fired, you can always count on Carlisle to give the most glowing, effusive praise imaginable, no matter what the situation is. He's always going to come out on the side of the coach. And when Pierce got fired, this was a new one. Carlisle said, in very large part to Lloyd, Georgia went from a Republican to a Democratic state. And not to say that Lloyd Pierce didn't play a role in that, but I was just like, wow, I didn't realize he was that crucial to our political system. <laughs> Rick Carlisle is shocked. He is shocked and awed about this situation. He's a shocked not about every single coaching fire that has happened under his watch uh, as he's been leader of this coaches association. I will say there are is a lot of merit to what he's saying there. I did feel like Lloyd Pierce had made a significant contribution not only to that team, but like the community. He was very active. I think he was in charge of um, the racial justice uh, coalition that they had formed there. Uh, he played a big role. And, and like you felt like he was coming to represent not only the team, but like that area, which is like a special thing that doesn't really happen these days because coaches just are so disposable. I think like there's only a couple that really are still kicking around from even like just a couple of years ago. Carlisle is one of them. You always see the same graphic, right? It's It's pop. It's Stevens, it's Carlisle, and it's Eric Spolstra. For that reason, I'm a little disappointed, but this seemed inevitable if only because it's like the Hawks made no, uh, you know, they didn't hide the fact that they were pushing for the playoffs and it can't, you can't really do much with this roster midseason considering all of the injuries they've incurred. The easy solution is to fire the coach here. But one thing I'm curious from your guys' perspective, like, is that the easy answer here? Or do you think that Pierce, Rob, was like an actually a good coach who brought out the best in some of these guys? Well, before we even get to that, I, I don't want to walk past the community part of this too quickly just because I, I wonder sometimes if teams are going about this stuff backwards, if they're out thinking themselves in terms of, as you mentioned, Justin, this is a coach who had instilled himself within this community in terms of the political system, in terms of getting people registered to vote, making making the Hawks as itself a more political organization within this community. That's the kind of thing that can take a coach six years, seven years, a decade to do, just because these guys, as we've, as we've mentioned, are transplants by nature. That is what their job is, is they're moving around. If you can have that kind of bond between a front-facing member of your organization and the city, I don't know that I would be the kind of person, if I were running an organization, to just throw that away over some injuries and some light disappointment. I think there are some things that the Hawks were doing wrong that you could say, oh, well, if Trey Young isn't motivated to defend right now, some of that blame goes with Lloyd Pierce. If you know we look a little disorganized in this way or that, if we're disappointing in crunch time situations, some of that blame goes with Lloyd Pierce. I just saw him as more of a coach that a team could grow with. And, and the problem here is the, the manner in which the Hawks are operating and the expectations they have placed on themselves as an organization took away that opportunity to grow, took away any chance that Lloyd Pierce had to actually develop as a coach along with his team 
because they need to make the playoffs right now. I think that's a really good point about letting coaches develop with the team. And you can see that in some respects with Minnesota and Ryan Saunders, where it's almost like the front office hires kind of the younger coach to grow with the players, knowing that, okay, I can always fire this guy down the road when it's time to start winning and blame him for all the losses before. So they're kind of put in this no-win situation where like, you really can only look at Pierce this season, right? Like His first two seasons in Atlanta, there's nobody winning with those rosters. It's just not going to happen. So it's pretty much like a 34-game sample full of injuries. But I, I think also, though, like what I think they're looking at with Pierce is probably the crunch time performance. Atlanta, I think, has blown 11 fourth-quarter leads this season, and they have one of the worst crunch time numbers in the league. I think they're number 29 net rating. And that probably goes back to Trey Young, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Pierce is still young. I believe he's 44. Uh, I thought what was really enlightening in the same interview he gave to The Athletic in which he admitted that like, he expected to be fired, which if you actually read the interview, uh, it did sound like he was talking more generally than saying, like, I'm, you know, the axe is hanging over me. Maybe he had some inclination, I'm sure, like after blowing the fourth quarter leads, as you mentioned, Sharks, especially that really ugly one against Cleveland. Like, I'm sure like he felt the pressure and he also knew the situation they were in, in Atlanta this year where there was pretty clearly a mandate to make the playoffs. The one thing I thought was most enlightening when he was talking about just adjustments they were making, and I think the question was about, like, yo, how do you incorporate some of these young guys? How do you work with Okongwu? How do you get him involved? And, like, John Collins still needs to figure things out. Um, And he pointed to Clint Capella as a guy who, despite being a really good defender, and uh, we've talked in the past about, like, what a destructive force he's been for that defense, pretty much anchoring uh, an otherwise pretty porous group. Clinton was a guy who came from a system who would switch a lot. And we're asking him to do different things. We're asking him, uh, his specific words here were, be a concept guy. And I thought that was really enlightening. That really spoke to how even the guys who are available, it's tough to really work with them and really try to find the best uh, parts of them. Um, But in the big picture sense, like it just seemed like he was the easy person to let go because they can't really do much else. Um, I think it brings me to the point whether or not like Travis Schlenk is actually culpable here because as we're going through this, I know they've had injuries, but even some of the guys he brought in in order to kind of stem uh, the tide here a little bit haven't performed all that well. Rondo and Gallo in particular have been pretty bad here. Do we think if we're like cutting up the blame pie, we're looking more at Schlenk perhaps than, than Pierce? I think I'm looking at more bad injury luck. Just because when, when DeAndre Hunter was healthy, this was basically a 500 team, maybe slightly better. When he and Capella have been on the floor together, this team has been good. Like th- This has been a good team. And so even sustaining all those injuries, even weathering them, this team should have been good enough to win if they had all their bodies. But Bogdan Bogdanovich has barely played. And that's kind of your source of secondary offense in a lot of cases with this team. So yeah, Gallo has been, I would say, especially on defense, really, really rough. He's finally had some good shooting games lately, which has helped. Rondo has not looked great. Uh, Anyaka Ankongwu, who you know had some injuries to start the season, but is also, at least to my eye, just getting DNP CD'd unless he has some injuries that haven't been disclosed. But that's kind of to be expected. And, and you know, to to Charks's point about with these coaches and and you know kind of throwing out or at least putting the last few Hawk seasons in a separate category. When does the you know, when does the clock really start for these guys? Because so many players on this team are in their first two or three seasons in the league. 
are really just learning how to play NBA basketball. I don't know. Like, to me, that's not even a Schlank problem or a Lloyd Pierce problem. That's a young team problem. These are the growing pains that you go through if you're trying to you know, gradually build into a playoff contender you know, versus accelerate into it as if you, know, you just are deserving of that because you spent a lot of money. Yeah, and I feel like it's almost the GM wants to fire the coach because this is the time to do it, right? I, I wouldn't have the Hawks in my no-power rankings. I think this team has a lot of talent. So like, if you look at the numbers, when Capella, Collins, Young, and Hunter have played together, they're plus 13 in 200 minutes. This is a team with a lot of young talent. That doesn't even count Cam Reddish and Kevin Herter, who both had some flashes. And I think if you're Slank, you're saying, okay, if I expect this team to do better this year and better next year, like, when's my window to fire Lloyd Pierce? My window to fire him is right now. And I feel like whoever comes in for Pierce, whether it's Nate McMillan or a coach in the offseason, this is a great job. Like, whoever comes in next, Pierce laid the groundwork for someone else to have a great run to start their, their time in Atlanta. Yeah, I think ultimately this falls at the feet of ownership. I mean, this is just the same situation as the process playing out for us. Like they invested in a full down tear, like a tear down and then a rebuild. And we're going to take this slowly and do all the right things. They talked about their sports science and yada, yada, yada. We're going to accumulate assets. And then they just accelerated the process when they got tired of just waiting and things were looking a little uglier optically than perhaps they were waiting for. I think though, if you're going to play devil's advocate, there are a couple things just in Schlank's like ledger that probably don't look kindly upon him. Obviously, the, the Trey Young and Luka Doncic thing, which we don't really have to go into detail, though, but that is a giant stain on his resume. I do wonder if that's ultimately what's going to get him fired. Uh, as, as simple as it is to say, it's, it, it really probably will come down to that at some point. But there are some other things here that are a little spotty. We're talking about how they don't have enough depth. And while some of the depth that they brought in this offseason has, in fact, been the ones who have gotten injured. We're talking about Bogdan. Chris Dunn, I don't believe, has even played a game. Uh, Rajan Rondo has been hurt when he hasn't been really awful. Uh, but like they, they did that specifically in order to build depth. And I think if Gallo isn't contributing in the games that he's been playing, I think that's a really, it's a tough, sell for Schlenk in particular. Okongu not being able to show anything is also really bad. And then the John Collins situation. Uh, And maybe this is something they can suss out before the trade deadline. Maybe this is part of a bigger plan where they get rid of the coach and then like they figure out the Collins thing. But, you know, Collins is really pushing for a max contract. And uh, it seems like that situation is going to be ugly no matter which way it turns out. They're either going to have to overpay him or they're going to have to trade him. And I don't know. Like, th- There are a lot of situations here where you can point to and say that Schlenk hasn't been doing the best of jobs, even if perhaps like the overarching problem is ownership. I would say like beyond the Luka thing, which is, you know, we've taught, been talked to death, the backup point guard thing is really ridiculous. So they've had three seasons with Trey and Trey in charge, and they've just never had even an average backup point guard. Like their offense is always dropping like 10 or 15 points. So this year, I had a smart on the ringer today. With Trey on the floor, they're the n- number seven offense in the league. Without Trey, they're number 30. And it's just like, it shouldn't be that hard to find a competent backup. And like Rondo, we all know Rondo is playoff Rondo. Like regular season Rondo has not been good in a long time. And you just got to have a good backup point guard. That's not that hard to find. And they just never had it. Well, what do we think about Nate McMillan here? So he's been around for a really long time. Is there anything to the idea that maybe whatever veteran know-how he has here is going to have a positive effect on this team that maybe Pierce didn't? Rob, you, you know McMillan pretty well. 
yeah, I mean, McMillan's a good coach. He's coached a lot of really solid defenses. The problem is it's hard to prop up a team when there are just liabilities all over the place. And, and some of that comes back to what we've been talking about with Trey, which in a roundabout way, I think is the issue with him is he's gotten better at the things he was already good at. You know, he's, he's escalating his game as a playmaker. He's clearly bumped up his scoring, especially from his rookie season over these last two years. But as a defender, as an off-ball player, I, I think is disinterested border, you know, like disinterested, ineffective, chalk it up however you want. He doesn't seem very engaged or very inclined to do those things, to be involved in that way. Can McMillan be the kind of coach who gets him motivated to, to participate in other aspects of the game that aren't, you know, a direct so, you know, result of his creation with the ball? I don't know. That, that's a tough sell. And beyond that, can he really make sense of a team that has all these pieces shuffling in and out with injury? I think he's in a position, McMillan is, to look better than Pierce did because he's going to get Bogdanovich back, presumably after the All-Star break, because some of these guys are going to be getting healthier. Hunter, I think, is a longer-term thing. We're going to have to wait and see with that. But at least just getting some healthy bodies back to balance out the second units, to put some better pieces around Trey, you know, that's really half the battle, if not more than that, with this team. I really like the point about Trey off-ball and defense. And I think whoever the long-term coach here, that's your number one priority, is can you get Trey to buy into those things? Does that have to happen through like natural processes in the playoffs with him losing to buy in? Can you build that relationship enough to where you can call him out about that and say, we need you to change. This has to happen. And whoever that coach is, I think, is that's the number one priority going forward. Yeah, I mean, the defense is probably my biggest concern here. And you would hope that McMillan, considering his history in the league, would be able to maybe do a little bit more there. I mean, I think whoever is going to step into this job is going to have an advantage in that they were, are probably going to have a healthier uh, roster than the first half of the season. And so, uh, but just going back to two, three years now, we're under Pierce's, uh, Pierce's regime here. The defense has been pretty ugly. You would think that with Trey and some of the other guys they have in this team, they could piece together enough on offense. But I think having a credible defense is probably going to be the difference between this team making even the play-in game uh, or or not, um, which I guess brings us to the trade deadline. Anything you guys see in, in terms of like an easy move for them to make, would you pull the trigger on a Collins deal? And if so, like, what does this team need instead of him? Considering that the you know the way they're gunning for the playoffs, can you even do that? You know, when Collins has been one of the most reliable players this season, it's you know you'd have to be getting back something in return, a player, you know, certainly a player in return. We're kind of t tossing out the draft picks idea for a team with the Hawks' priorities, someone who's really consistent, really reliable, and who doesn't interfere positionally with guys like Hunter, with guys like Bogdanovich, with all these players you've painstakingly brought into your organization. I don't see a lot of really clean fits out there, which is part of the reason I've kind of been on the, the hang on to John Collins bent most of this season for that reason. It's, it's tricky. It, it really is to find potential trade partners for him and the Hawks. Yeah, I mean, and the big thing like people were wondering at the start of the season was the fit between John Collins and Clint Capella. And that's probably maybe the biggest plus in Pierce's kind of resume is how well they played together this season. Their two big men have really found a nice mix. When they're on the floor together, they guard pretty well. Collins is spacing the floor more, play more on the perimeter. I mean, it works. What, what they have with their top players works. So to me, it's more about getting healthy than making a big trade if they're trying to make the playoffs this season. The, the unfortunate thing about wanting to make the playoffs so quickly is in an ideal version of this season, I think the Hawks would be really developing Collins as a secondary ball handler. 
it would be a lot more him being put in positions to create. But given, again, given their priorities, given what they want to do on a nightly basis, they're just not in a position to weather some particularly inefficient nights as he feels his way through a, a new job. And so you would love to see him groom that part of his game to become that kind of more all-around perimeter player. It's just not in the cards right now, given what they need to do. Right. I mean, worst case scenario, you just go into the offseason. If he gets a max deal from somebody else, you just match it and then potentially just like trade him eventually. That's not always like the easiest solution um, because it means like getting someone to accept a max contract via trade and to give up stuff in addition to that. But, you know, I mean, just look at the Bogdan situation. Uh, the Kings gave him up for for nothing. And while, you know, at the time they're like, well, we're turning the page, yada, yada, yada. I don't think it was the best asset, uh, you know, distribution. And, and they could really use something right now in order uh, to make up for that, his absence. Uh, let's take a quick break, though. Uh, and when we come back, we can talk about the Kings and perhaps some other teams that need a little help this season. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man. I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Nissan. Level up your next four-wheeled adventure with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, built to navigate you to some of Earth's most awe-inspiring spots with seven drive modes and all the power you need. Get the thrill of the drive in every moment of your journey with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. All right, let's talk about some more bad teams. Uh, We call this the No Power Rankings, uh, which is a series we've done at times on TheRinger.com. Looking at some of the worst situations in the league, which I think is a this is a particularly good time to do so because there are some teams, my friends, who are just absolutely hitting rock bottom. Um, let's do this. I, I want to come up with like a, a cumulative ranking here. So let's start from the bottom, or in this case, number five. I guess, I guess being good means you're at the bottom. Um, Rob, make the case for your number five team on your list, and then we'll go around and and probably. Five is the worst. One is the best. One is the bleakest. Five is the most promising rel- relative to the power, the no power rankings. Right. I found this to be an exercise where there were kind of four teams I felt were pretty solidly the bottom four. And the fifth spot to me is where things get tricky. And that's where I fell into the Kings here. And it's tricky because Darren Fox is an all-star caliber, all-star adjacent level player, which is more than some of these teams have. Tyrese Halliburton, we've spoken glowingly of him on this podcast repeatedly. I don't think we need to do that again. And then they have some potential trade pieces. There's potential for improvement here. And I mean, frankly, there's some coaching upside here in terms of the fact that Luke Walton, I don't think, has done a very good job 
uh, managing that team. So there's there's room for improvement. That said, they're in the Western Conference, which is brutal and uncompromising, at least in terms of getting to a playoff level. And then you're in a place where I don't think that the guys that they need to trade will fetch all that much on the market. And, and that's where I, I get into this place with this team where can a team be both bleak and fun? Can they be like the trashy reality TV of the NBA where I don't know how much faith they give me in humanity to watch the Kings play, but they can be a really entertaining watch even for the next few seasons. They can slowly you know, grind something out, build towards something. I just don't know what the way forward looks like for Sacramento. So I didn't have Sacramento on my list. And that was in part because I tended to prioritize or, and by this, I mean that they wouldn't be on this list, so they are too good in order to be on this list, uh, teams who actually had a star player or multiple star players or players with star potential. I think that is the difference between, between a team that is like just bleak and a team that is just absolutely hopeless, bottom of the barrel, this really needs a, a stripped-down, tear-down situation. And having Fox alone is one thing, but they also have Halliburton. This is a new front office. At the very least, you have Buddy Heald and Marvin Bagley to trade if you don't feel like they fit into your situation. I don't know. I think if this was last year and this was the same front office, I would put them in this group. But at the very least, there are signs of hope that this could turn the page with a couple right decisions here and there. Rob, I'm curious if you have Cleveland's on your bottom five. I don't. That was my kind of five, six dilemma was Cleveland versus Sacramento. I think I compare those two a lot. And then I just look at it like, man, I would much rather have Fox and Halliburton than Sexton and Garland, right? Because these are both teams building around two young guards. And I just feel like the Kings' young guards are significantly better now and going forward. We can, Well, let's kind of combine these conversations because I think Cleveland is a good comparison point. To me, it's less a Sexton-Garland conversation and some of that's because I would say I'm probably pretty low on Darius Garland overall. I think Colin Sexton has a real place. He's had, had a pretty strong season, even as their, as Cleveland's uh, run overall has soured a little bit. But to me, it's less about that backcourt, which has been a negative 7.5 net rating for the Sexland duo over the course of this season. They've been aggressively sloppy with the ball as a team when that group is on the floor. It's it's really a bummer. I see it more as it's Sexton, it's Okoro, it's Jared Allen, and it's a healthy Larry Nance. And it's like, okay, if that's kind of the core of our team, how close are we? And trade-wise, do, am, I, am I more encouraged by trading Buddy Heald and Marvin Bagley? And we also, also should note Sacramento, for Sacramento, Rashawn Holmes is going to be a free agent who's either going to have to get paid or flipped or something. But do I, do I like the trade returns for those kind of guys or a Kevin Love, for example? who we haven't really seen fit with this Cleveland team yet. So I had Cleveland at four on my list, actually. Uh, I had them toggling between five and four, and at the last second, I put them on four, in large part because of two things. One, there's now evidence that there have been a lot of people clashing with the front office, Kobe Altman in particular. Uh, Jason Lloyd wrote for The Athletic a really good piece about how there's now this long history of veterans in particular who have like over the past like two, three years even just like come into contact with Altman. And that's LeBron, Lou, J.R. Smith, Kevin Love, Kevin Porter Jr., Andre Drummond. 
Now, devil's advocate would be a lot of those guys are veterans. This team was trying to turn the page. A lot of them were leftovers from the LeBron era, and they probably didn't want to go along with the new regime and the new way of things going. But then I would point to some of the issues that the team has had outside of just picking at the top of the draft. Like I look at this team, and it's been bad for now. This is three years, and all I see are top lottery picks. Like Where are the guys like Ja'Shawn Tate or... Just some of these guys on the fringes where you have all these roster spots, why aren't you finding any sort of un- like hidden gems? If anything, I look at a guy like Jordan Clarkson and I see how he's been completely reborn as the sixth man of the year candidate in a different situation where just a couple years ago in Cleveland, he was just a chucker and was completely unplayable. So like to me, there's like something organizationally going there, which is why I would put them four. Justin, I would say that it ultimately ties back to the star conversation. It's very hard to find role players when there's not a role for them playing off an established number one guy. And that, that to me is why Cleveland is on my, on my, on my list is because I just, I, I, Sexton's been very good this year. He's clearly a top level scorer, but I just don't think you can build a team around a 6'2 scoring guard, really a good team. And I just don't see that number one star cornerstone player. And without that player, everything else is so in flux all the time, right? You're always having to make the perfect lineup, have five guys in together. It's just hard to make it work sustainably without that foundation piece. Where do you have them on your list? I've got them at four. Actually, maybe three, sorry. I got them at three. (laughs) Okay. Um, The other thing I would point out is just the bad contracts on this team. That's another thing that I weighed really heavily. So Kevin Love still, after this season, has two years, 60 million. The Torian Prince contract isn't looking particularly good. That's next year. It's going to be a $15 million contract, although it's an expiring. So you can never really tell whether that's a positive or a negative sometimes. The other thing is Chetty Osman. Why why did they sign him to a long-term deal? Was this just like because he had the fumes of like LeBron just like... uh, you know, just the good vibes of being a LeBron friend still like permeating from him that they felt like, oh, he has to be good. <laughs> like LeBron liked him. Um, but he signed for two years plus a non-guaranteed year. So there's a lot to kind of like sift through still in order to have the, cre- the, the kind of like clean break they're hoping for with this younger core. You could really set your watch by every time LeBron plays against Chetty Osman and is asked about him, the time in which it takes him to say, that's my guy. That's my guy. Every time. <laughs> I respect it. LeBron's guys get paid. It's true. It's true. Um, all right. Let's, um, let's go to another team here. Charks, who did you have at five? I actually had uh, Orlando. Mm, okay. And, and my thought process with all of these things is how long is it going to take for this team to become like a high-level team? How long is this rebuild? And I just wrote with Orlando, they've hit a ceiling with this version of this team. And they're going to have to start over pretty soon. And I don't know how many long-term building blocks they have that I really believe in other than Jonathan Isaac, who's just been hurt in his whole career, basically. So that, that's what worries me about them is like, you might be looking at a team stuck at like 35, 40 wins and then starting over again at like 15, 20 in like two years. I actually have them at two. Ooh. And some of it, I think that's a great way to look at it, Sharks, in terms of how long is it going to take this team to get back to a, a credible level. Sub-question off of that, how many players on this team are going to be a part of that team? Like, how many pieces here are really going to be involved in the next good Magic team? It doesn't look like many. Because, I mean, it's post-injury Isaac, it's post-injury Markel Fultz, 
It's, you know, Nikola Vucevic, who's had a really good season. Who knows what happens with him long-term. Aaron Gordon's going to be on an expiring contract next season if they don't trade him by the deadline. I, I, I don't know how all this, you know, sifts out in a way that leads to playoff caliber consistent basketball without a pretty long runway attached to that. And that's, that's a tough place to be. And I think it's really a result of them getting such a bad draw in terms of the timing of some of these injuries, where every time it looks like they're finally going to be able to at least get a look at their kind of weird misfit team, some guy gets pulled out of the lineup, two guys get pulled out of the lineup. Right now, everybody's out of the lineup. So it's it's hard. It's hard to evaluate that team given those circumstances, but it's put them in a really unfavorable spot. The Kem Birch Mobamba just trade-off has become like a nightly storyline for this team to the point where the few magic like Twitter followers I have or follows that I have are talking about that like every night. Like, oh, Ken Birch played and Obama didn't because they were because the other team was playing pick and roll and Birch is so much better at pick and roll defense. It's just that thing is really the only thing that actually people are following with this team anymore. Busevich has been good. I actually didn't have them on my list. And here's why. I think there's a lot of things to figure out here. But I do think bottoming out is actually what's best for them. I know it didn't work out before. Uh, all the bites at the apples ended up with the team that they have now where it's just Gordon and no real superstar. But I do think they need a frontline star player. And I think if you added someone in the top three, top four of this draft, if it is as good as everyone says it is, this team makes a lot of sense because they have parts. They just need someone to build around, if that makes sense. Can we do a little swap with bite at the apple? This is this is a pet phrase in this conversation. I assume it'll come up a lot of times. Apples are all right. I feel like there are a lot of fruits we could choose. Like, can we take a bite of the stone fruit if we're if we're in Orlando's situation? I mean, let's be let's be honest. Like biting apples through human history hasn't worked out very well, right? <laughs> it's true. Are you guys green or red apples? I'm a uh, I'm a I'm a, maybe a Fuji, maybe a uh, I don't know. I go back and forth. I'm red for sure. Oh, no, actually, no. There's a definitive answer to this question. It's Honeycrisp. Sorry. Yes, Honeycrisp is the only acceptable answer. Thank you. Uh, okay, Charles, as you were saying? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what you're saying about the draft is so important. I think with this year's draft in particular, just from what I've, my, my, what I've seen talking to people on the NBA is there's probably two legit franchise-level players and Cade Cunningham and Evan Mobley who are going to go one and two in some order. And whoever gets those guys is going to change the whole course of their franchise. And that just tells you how much luck is involved in this whole business because there's no, like the, the days of the process are over. Like the odds are much lower for these worst teams. And maybe it's a team at number seven who goes to one, at number eight or nine who goes to one. Like whoever that team is, is going to change their whole future. And that's just unknowable right now. It's worth mm-hmm. noting too that all three of the teams we've talked about so far, Orlando, Sacramento, Cleveland, all have all of their future first-round picks. So maybe, maybe that's proof that I have Orlando ranked a little bit too low, high, however you want to put it, on my list. Yeah, with Orlando, it just seems fixable. It seems like it's an easier fix than some of these other situations. Um, I'm going to go to number five on my list, which is a team that probably doesn't need fixing right now. I really waffled on this one. So this is the Washington Wizards. We're playing better than they have at any point this season. Russell Westbrook is reborn. Uh, the problem is just the context with which they're pl- playing under. They owe the first round draft pick to the Houston as a result of the Westbrook trade, which isn't great, but it is in the future. And so it's not terrible. We'll see. 
the problem is they have Westbrook under contract for two more two more years after this one at ninety one million. Uh, Bertans is coming around. He's shooting a little bit better these days, but that contract can look uh, pretty ugly pretty quickly if he doesn't if he reverts back to his early season form. And then Bradley Beal. I mean, if this team loses Bradley Beal, which it seems on a crash course toward, like I, I just don't think that this is a good team. And if anything, it's going to take a couple years in order to rebuild. Um, but they are playing okay now. And it seems like Beal, maybe this is PR, maybe it's not, but has some sort of like loyalty to the franchise or at the very least wants to do it on his terms and wants it to be his team. And so there is some shred of doubt that maybe he will stay beyond the situation. But for me, they were five and not necessarily like, like super bleak. I think they're the bleakest team on this list that's close to being kind of good. Which which is why they're hard to place. But to your point, Justin, I see an, an operation that's just completely reliant on Beal. And w- when you're banking on that, when when your whole organization and your philosophy and your the build of your team is reliant on a guy, basically his pain tolerance on you know not at some point wanting to move elsewhere, it it puts you in such a precarious spot. And that that's kind of where the darkness is here. Is that the darkest timeline? We we haven't even seen anything close to the bottom yet uh, of what this team could look like and how long their time horizon could be if it's Russell Westbrook and some draft picks that you get in a Bradley Beal trade and the young guys on this team. Because the the one thing that, you know, this isn't a fair question to ask at this point because these guys are still so young. But what happens if Rui Hachimura and Denny Avdia are just kind of okay? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's almost like the next year or two should be reasonable, but then like the long-term outlook is very cloudy, right? So it's like, how do you balance? I mean, if you have Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, you should make the playoffs. They should probably make it at this point. But two, three years from now, does Beal ask out, then you're starting all the way over. So it's just hard to hard to balance that in this kind of outlook. Yeah, but it has been nice of late seeing it all kind of work together. There is a chalk outline of a team that works here where it's like Beal is going to draw the attention just because of what an electric scorer he is. And if Russ isn't injured, if that hamstring isn't just bothering him, then he could attack off the catch and do what he did kind of in Houston where he's just barreling downhill and then maybe finding open shooters like Davis Bertans who shoots uh, on a good night like 45% from three. Like There is a team here and there is like a working theory, but it all hinges, I think, not only on Beal wanting to stay, but Russ being healthy. And like that just hasn't been the case more often than not of late. And I do wonder if all of this nice play that they've had over the past nine, ten games or so, if Russ just like gets hit in the leg, like all of a sudden it goes away. It's like it's very fleeting. And to go off Rob's point, like one of the big changes they made is they're starting Garrison Matthews now at the three, like a pure shooter instead of starting Denny, more of a project young guy. And that's always the balance, right? Is how much are you developing your young guys for the future for trying to win now? And they're clearly in win-now mode, but that could have long-term side effects. Did you guys have him, uh, have the Wizards on your list? Yeah, I had him at four. I was debating, I had them at six. I was debating them in Orlando. It seems like we have kind of a tier forming here of the, of the maybe the borderline teams for this ranking between Cleveland and Sacramento and Washington as kind of a four to six in, in some capacity. And maybe Orlando, in, in if we want to group them here as well. So Rob, did you give your number four team yet? It was Washington. Okay, so I had Washington and Cleveland at 5-4. You had what? Sacramento, Washington. Sharks? 
So I've been going back and forth, and I think I will just go. Um, <laughs> this is a fluid process. The draft board isn't final until the pick is made. No, I'll sure. say or, I'll say Orlando, Minnesota. Actually, five and four, Orlando, Minnesota. Okay, well then let's talk about Minnesota because I have them at three. Sharks make the case for Minnesota. I mean, because you got Carl Towns, number one. I, I believe in Carl Towns' talent. I believe if he has a decent team around him, he has three seasons left on his contract. And at some point, they should have more veterans to fill out the rest of this roster. It's really crazy. I, I believe in the, year and a half, in the year since they've had Towns, Russell, and Beasley, those guys have played like two games together. So like Towns comes back this time, Beasley gets suspended for his offseason incident, Russell, knee surgery. I still think that's a construct of a decent enough team. And then they have some good young talent behind them. But I will admit, my Minnesota optimism is looking pretty dim these days. And that might be an optimistic ranking because it looks horrific right now. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I had them as the bleakest team. And the towns, like, <laughs> the, the difficulty of getting to that point while having Carl Towns on your team is incredible. But I mean, that's what bleakness looks like is making the playoffs one time in 17 seasons. And, and the, <laughs> right. urgency, the urgency that that puts into your organization and the realities that Sharks laid out of, of not having your best players on the floor at the same time, of not knowing what Towns and Russell and Edwards and Beasley could look like together if those guys can even play together. We don't really know. We won't know for a little while. But they've been uniquely penalized, I think, by their injuries because the middle section of their roster or what's supposed to be the middle section of their roster is just an abscess by NBA talent standards. Like they have they have guys who should be kind of good, fun, end-of-the-bench type players. The Nas Reeds, the Jordan McLaughlins, like those guys are, are NBA players. Like they could be on a good team in a much lesser role but they share the fate of so many bad teams in that players are just totally miscast by their circumstances and the demands it puts on them. So, I mean, I wonder, especially with the outgoing pick potentially to the Warriors, either this year or next, you know, on top of all the difficulties that they've had, on top of they've just broken Ricky Rubio's spirits, which is unforgivable. <laughs> I, I do wonder a lot about the future of this team where you, you look at some of these other situations and you say, okay, they have a bankable star, they have a talent base, Minnesota has that stuff, but in a way that seems really fragile to me. Yeah, let's talk about the Rubio thing just briefly here. So I think this is rock bottom for this team because it's not like Rubio comes from just winning experiences. Like he was on the Showtime Lakers. Uh, he was with the Mbutu Celtics and now he's in this bad situation. He's just like shocked by just like how bad this team is. He was there for the darkest of the dark times of the David Kahn era. And yet last week he was basically like, man, this shit is fucked. <laughs> like nothing is working here. And I think he highlighted something that like speaks to like the bleakest of situations where he's like, it's not just that we're a young team making young mistakes. We're not learning from those mistakes. His specific quote was, I don't feel like this is building something, which, dear God, like how bad can you get? And to underline his points, this team has won two games since the beginning of February. They are 2-14, and 14, and they have yet to win a game since Chris Finch took over midseason. And what was one of the most bizarre situations in recent history that I could even remember where a guy just like steps in and is like, all right, um, I guess I'm running the team now. I know I haven't, I haven't been here until yesterday, but like, can you just run this DHO real quick? This is like kind of wild. Well, to your point about making mistakes and not learning from them, I will defend Carl Towns' talent 
from now until the end of time. Incredibly talented player, very capable, should be, you know, should be on par with an all NBA MVP level player someday. Can we say he's learned from his mistakes at any point in his career so far? Yeah. And then you look at it like, yeah, he has streers on his deal, but if you're not getting better by year two, you know, I think I, I had him too high because yeah, what if it's a trade towns in a year? And now you're rebuilding all over again after so many years of rebuilding. Yeah, that's my. I might have been too uh, too high on the rules thinking about it. So, I had him at three in part because of Towns and also Russell and Edwards. Like I, I basically had a bunch of criteria I laid out for each team, and potential All Stars was one of them, if not like the biggest point. And they have three guys who potentially could make an All Star game. You can quibble about whether or not like if Russell were to make another one, it would just be more just empty calorie scoring. But they have talent on this team. They have top tier talent, which is what differentiates teams in this league. The thing that could really torpedo them to number one on this list, so the bleakest team in the NBA, is whether or not Towns just wants out. And right now, it just seems like the ledger tilts more toward him staying than not, if only because of how many years he has on his contract. But they're getting dangerously, dangerously close to him being the next guy that wants out. I would say, like, of that next class of superstars... Uh, in this, if we're calling it the player empowerment era, let's say the Bookers, you know, the Townses of the world, the Ben Simmons. Towns would make the most sense as the guy who would want out, especially considering his recent run of just like having really just like shitty luck with like just life. I, I would imagine he would welcome uh, a, a change of like scenery real quickly. But until that happens, that is why I have them at three and not one. Well, if we can go from macro to micro real quick, Jaden McDaniels is a bit on the nose for us to talk about. I know Charks is already kind of saying his praises on another pod, which shall not be named. Uh, I don't listen to that one. No, but you know, <laughs> he, he, he is the exact kind of talent that sings to, to me and to us, I think. And we don't choose who we love. So I, I, you know, he is worth noting as a guy who could jump out on this roster and could make things work. But what he kind of signifies to me is the Wolves really needed Jarrett Culver to be good. They really needed mm. some of these other picks to pan out in a way that they haven't. And the fact that Jaden McDaniels is the great hope that could make all this fit together, that's not where you want to be. And I guess if you want to go really, really micro, his minutes got cut when Finch was there. And I really feel like Finch doesn't know the roster. Like he came in as like, okay, this number 28 pick. How much does he watch Minnesota as an assistant in the other conference? Probably not a ton. So he's kind of throwing the roster on the fly. And I, I was just yeah. horrified to see that. I was horrified. I mean, this is where like the Houston Rockets starts to show with Gerson Rosas, though. But like he has started to find some helpful players out of nowhere. And that's the one thing I was dinging Cleveland for. Like Jared Vanderbilt is like an NBA player, Nas Reed, NBA player. Like they have found some guys in the fringes, which is like is helpful. Like those are rotation players. Maybe they're a guy that you could package into a trade or just throw them in there as like not just complete deadweight salary down the road. Um, and I also think there is this the possibility here, even though the draft pick is only top three protected, which means there's a, a great possibility that it ends up in the Golden State Warriors' hands. Uh, Zach Cram did a whole piece on this the other uh, other week about when and, and what the likelihood of the pick uh, is to convey. But like, there's a timeline here where they end up with another top three pick, and all of a sudden it's Towns, Russell, Edwards, and whoever, Mobley, or whoever you want to throw in there. And that's probably the best accumulation of young talent we've had since the Thunder with Harden, with Harden Westbrook, and, and KD. I don't know if it would work out, but that's a really, really talented team. 
But I guess we should point out too with Roses, he had the number one pick last year. And I like Anthony Edwards. I think he's a really good prospect. But taking him over LaMelo has not worked out so far. And it may end up being the thing that's held over him for his whole career in Minnesota. Because that was LaMelo, like Culver at six two years ago, and LaMelo over Edwards over LaMelo. Those are the things that are really, as a GM, you're judged on as your high lottery picks. Yeah, and you you wonder if the decision to trade for Russell led to the decision of Edwards, where it's like, if they didn't have Russell, would they have been more inclined to draft someone like Lamelo who needs the ball in his hands and uh, is more of a point guard than Edwards who could maybe play off of Russell? I, I do wonder if like those kind of bad decisions almost compounded. Um, so I had them at three. Rob, you had them at one. I had them at one. And Sharks, you had them at four, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so who's left here? Um, I have the Houston Rockets at two. Where did you guys have them? I did not rank them. Oh, I had them, at two. I had them at two as well. Wow. Okay. So Rob, you're the outlier here. Why don't you make the case for why Houston doesn't belong in this list? Wait, you mean it's not a good thing that they're losing like dozens of games straight right now? Yeah, 12 straight losses last night against the Cavs, which like I was desperately trying to watch for this exercise. Like I kept having to like turn to actually good games, including uh, the Pelicans beating the Jazz. Yeah, I think you were okay and missing that one, Justin. You were probably... (laughs) (laughs) It was brutal. I mean, the Rockets came back, but ultimately lost to the Cavs. Yeah, this is this is really... It got really sad really quickly. Remember like a month ago, we were like, oh my God, their defense is just so good. This is like, they could have the best of both worlds and now they've lost 12 straight. So Rob, make the case for Rockets optimism. There's just too many picks. And, and you know, I, I want to, you know, foreground this with Charks wrote about the Rockets and the unique situation of their rebuild, having given up some of their picks in various trades and now having to kind of replenish those coffers and the position that puts them in. It's an awkward spot not having full control of your picks when you need to be a bad team and, you, and you're really banking on that for improvement. But they do have so many bites at the Honeycrisp apple slash stone fruit here that I, I have some reason for optimism there on top of the fact that Christian Wood, when healthy, has been so good. You know, he's been amazing for them in terms of what they needed him to be. And the fact that all of this losing has come with him out of the lineup, I kind of still see the outline of a decent team here. With the way Wall has played, with, you know, I don't know that I would be in the business of wanting to put a bunch of money into Victor Oladipo's pocket right now, especially when your roster's already kind of banking on John Wall and Eric Gordon to be healthy, which is, uh, you know, a bit of a long shot when you're compounding all those risks on top of each other. But they've made their bed with that. You know, I, I think the better version of the Rockets' future is probably a Karis Levert instead of Victor Oladipo, which was a conscious decision that they made with their James Harden deal. But between the the players they have, in particular Wood, and all of these draft picks, I think most crucially that they own their own picks in the next two drafts after this one, the 2022-2023. That's kind of the runway I'm looking at here is can they be a good team by 2023? I kind of think they can get there. So the one thing against all the picks is kind of what you were laying out there. They don't have their pick this year, which it's possible that this ends up being the worst year. It's top four protected. It's a swap. So if even if, if it falls on top four, they get to keep it no matter what. Also notable, I think, is the two picks that they have outgoing to Oklahoma City in 2024 and 2026. Those are one-shot picks to convey. Top four protected. Where if they are protected in those years, they don't convey as first-round picks anymore. That's huge. Now, that's to say if the, if the Rockets are still in a position to get a top four pick in 2024 or 2026, I think you guys probably win this argument. That's already pretty bleak. 
uh, but it does give them some protection in terms of the, the worst case scenarios here. Right. Yeah. I would only counter with the fact that a lot of the picks they have coming in are tied to a team that could be one of the best teams in modern basketball. And that, so they have, according to like the real GM, uh, just future draft sheet here, seven incoming picks plus two and a half swaps. I only gave them a half for one where it's like they have Brooklyn's, but they have to give the best one to Oklahoma City, yada, yada. And five and a half of those are tied to Brooklyn. If now there is a timeline where Brooklyn just like completely flubs this, Kevin Durant gets hurt. Uh, those guys just leave, Kyrie Irving just leaves basketball together to walk the earth. And those ultimately become just like the new version of the Celtics picks. But there is also a possibility where like those just end up being at the end of the first round in perpetuity. And so I do wonder there, like, what do I have here to bank on for my future? And there isn't much here. I, I like Wood, but I think like his ceiling is is kind of to be like just like an empty calories all star on a bad team, right? I would say Wood is legit building block. I wouldn't, you know, I think he's got a ton of talent. Obviously, it's right. just a matter of guess, what's there besides him as a young, right. as a young. Piece. That's what I was looking at as a young piece to build around Wood. It's just him, I think. Right. Yeah. That's what I should say. I really like Kristen Wood, but I do think he needs other guys around him for the team to be good rather than him just being excellent, which he was for a little bit in Detroit last year. I think he needs to be involved in two of contacts in order for that to be uh, to translate to wins. Well, and to argue against myself a little bit with the, uh, the Brooklyn picks, the tough thing about banking on Brooklyn to eventually fall off, even, you know, they have picks... Nets picks going out to 2027. So a lot could happen here. But even if things go badly in Brooklyn and say some of those guys leave, but Kevin Durant stays, that's still a good team. You know, like the, like Harden and Durant in particular are so good that as long as they have one of those guys, the Nets are going to be a pretty solid, pretty solid bunch that isn't going to convey a pretty high draft pick. Yeah, so I ding them for not really having more than Wood on the potential All-Stars list. Uh, the picks being mostly tied to Brooklyn's future. I do like that they have Oladipo and Tucker to trade here in order to get more draft assets, though you'd wonder, like, will they ever get a pick that is above the lottery? Hard to really say there, especially considering Oladipo's injury concerns and the fact that he's going to be a free agent and that P.J. Tucker is however old, 35 or whatever, um, and well, can, looking for a new throw, contract. You can throw Eric Gordon into that conversation, too, and Daniel House if you want to get crazy. See, I have Gordon on the bad contracts list. I think there's a possibility where they might be able to get a first from him, but his contract is after this season, three years and almost $60 million. The last year is non-guaranteed, but that's pretty rough for a guy who, as we talked about, like has just been injured left and right throughout his career. Like Maybe a team like the Celtics just gets like super desperate and they want to use that trade exception and they just toss the first plus that at them, but that one's tough. And then the, the wall contract. The wall contract is probably the worst contract in the NBA. He has two more years and $92 million on there. And I guess like the past 12 games have shown that if you have John Wall, like you could still be pretty bad, so you might not keep them from like completely bottoming out. But like I don't know. As long as he's there, he's just going to cast a paw on that team. And like, I don't know how you really like take a next step forward with him still wanting to be a guy there, like to, to really to run the show. And it seemed like he was very intent on that when he joined the Rockets this summer or winter or whatever. Is that such a bad thing? You know, like, I don't think John Wall is an all-star by any great shakes, but he's been pretty good for them this season. And in particular, if you're building around a guy like Wood, 
who you want a really capable playmaker alongside him, you could do a lot worse for training wheels than a guy with the vision of John Wall. Yeah, he can run your offense and get get your young guys the ball where they need it, and that's always helpful. And I think ultimately, if you're Houston, what's probably the most optimistic thing is they've shown like they can turn water into wine a bit. Like Jay Sean Tate, this guy was in Australia last year, looks like a player. And you have like Kevin Porter Jr., who's been absolutely destroying the G League. That's a guy with an incredible amount of talent who had a lot of off-the-court stuff going on. But you do that three or four or five times, all of a sudden you've got a little roster going. Maybe this is me just banging on the Kings a little bit. But if I if I had to make a bet, I would bet the Rockets are back in the playoffs before the Kings are. I, I mean, they are run by a former Rockets executive. So there's a, there's a connection there. It's true. Yeah, the only thing with Wall there is that the Wizards gave up on him and attached a first-round pick and took back an equally toxic contract, in part based on reports that they thought like they would be better chemistry-wise with Russell Westbrook than John Wall. I think that like says something about like the future there. Kevin O'Connor also had, at the time of the trade, had some reporting that suggested like the team wasn't really excited about like DeMarcus Cousins and John Wall becoming like the the power duo or the power couple of that team. So I don't know. It just like it's just not great. And so that's what I'm worried about there. But they are not number one on my team uh, or on my list. Charks, why don't you go first? Because I'm curious where you have my number one. Who is your number one? I had Detroit too. And I look okay. at it simply <laughs> as a matter of what are your long-term pieces? And I think you've got Jeremy Grant. And now you've just got to nail a bunch of draft picks because I'm not sure what the other... Killian Hayes, I think, really hurt them being hurt this year. They don't know what they have in him. And I think like when you're doing a full-on teardown rebuild, the concern is you don't get lucky in the lottery. You end up going picking like six, seven, eight for like three years and you're just kind of stuck. And I just feel like they just don't have a lot of talent on their roster right now and there's no guarantee more talent comes. So I was looking at it purely like... I mean, I love obviously talking about Jeremy Grant all day. But that's really your one piece you have. And it's just hard to get good players. They don't have any right now. So what you guys are saying is you don't have any faith in Kevin O'Connor's draft board. Number one overall, Killian Hayes. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Charks, you know more about him than anyone. I have some faith, but I, I think that injury really hurt him. And I think a young point guard, it's just going to... I always viewed Hayes as more... This might be a guy on his second team, like a D'Angelo Russell, where he might take him four or five years to kind of figure it out. And that doesn't really help you as a rebuilding team. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to make the case for the Pistons, and I have them in the middle of my ranking at three, it's about that young core of him and Isaiah Stewart and Sadiq Bey and what you think of them. I kind of like the vague outline of that team. You know, we haven't seen Hayes play very much so far. But between those three and having all their future first rounders for the foreseeable future, I think there's enough there to start to build momentum versus some of these other teams you're talking about. How do we trade these pieces? How do we pull this back so that we can build in this other way? I don't know. I kind of I kind of like that basis of a team along with Jeremy Grant. And then you have, you know, these other projects which you may feel whatever way about the Dennis Smith Juniors and the Josh Jacksons and whatnot. I, I think there's enough going on there to keep them out of the absolute bottom of this ranking, but I, I can't begrudge you when this, you know, this is a team literally talking about and thinking about how much money to eat on on Blake Griffin's contract. So uh, they're, they're not in a great way. Yeah. So in the midst of all of their interesting decisions over the offseason, and, and there are many, uh, the one thing that got pushed aside was they gave up a first-round pick 
in the deal that it was complex because it happened at different times, but it was essentially to get Isaiah Stewart. And I believe they got Ariza, but they flipped Ariza later. They gave up a first round pick. And at the time, the reporting was, oh, this is nothing. This is just a pick that's not going to convey. It's a fake pick, right? It's just something uh, the Rockets put in there to sell to their franchise that like they're building toward the future, yada, yada, yada. It ends up, if, if the real GM future draft uh, sheet that they have there is correct, it's not that like bad of a pick. It's actually, it's top 16 protected this season, which it's not going to happen. The team is too bad for that. They have nine wins this year, but the protections going forward are top 16, top 18, top 18, top 13, top 11, top nine in 2027. It goes all the way out to 2027, which I believe is the longest it can go toward. And you have to imagine that at some point, they convey that pick because if they're like competent, even if they make the playoffs, they're probably giving up that pick to which I say, why the fuck did you give up a first round pick for Isaiah Stewart, the number 16 pick in the draft? Like what is happening here that that is like a, a thing that happened? No, I kind of like <laughs> Isaiah Stewart to be honest, like, especially look, I think the most likely scenario for that pick is it conveys some time, not this year, but maybe in the three to four year range, like the 2023, 2024 in which it's top 18 protected. So we're talking about, do you want Isaiah Stewart or do you want the 22nd, 20th pick in the draft or whatever? If the Pistons are good. I would say this is why I had the Pistons number one. Because I'm looking at those protections and I'd be shocked if it conveyed before 2025. Like Really? This, this pick is the reason you have them number one? No, I'm saying the fact that those protections are not going to get hit. Like I'm looking at those protections and saying, they're right, going to be bad right. next this year. They're going to be bad next year. And top 18 protected those ne- the next two years, that means they're like above like an eight seed. And I'd with the talent they have right now, I'd be surprised if that happened. So I think that pick is not going to convey for a very, very long time. And that's why I think, I mean, because they have kind of a bleak future. They, I mean, they do, relatively speaking. I think I'm betting on the relative instability of the back half of the Eastern Conference playoff picture more than anything where any of these teams could be in that running. And if any of these young guys, you know, starts to get some traction in their career along with Jeremy Grant playing well, that might be enough, honestly. Right. They do have the rest of their first round picks. Uh, you know, after they deal with the Blake Griffin scenario, which wasn't, you know, this regime's problem, that they inherited that and they're just trying to figure out the best solution. The contracts aren't terrible. Like, you're not going to get anyone to sign there anyway. So like maybe signing Jeremy Grant to this outrageous $20 million a year deal won't hurt them that much. Which, by the way, take that back. It is not outrageous anymore. My man is putting up numbers. <laughs> sure. Let's end that adjective right now. I won't say the same thing about Mason Plumley, who for some reason is making like next nearly like $17 million over the next two years. But it comes down to drafting well, as Cherks mentioned. And that's really not a plan. That's just a hope. That's just like... You're just hoping to win the lottery, literally. And to me, that's that's like of the, all the teams that we're talking about here, they don't have anything in hand right now that you could say this is this is a good situation. They know the way forward. And I think that's a great point because if you look at a lot of these teams we're talking about, so Sacramento, Minnesota, Houston, Detroit, they're all being run by first or second year GMs. And we just don't know what their draft track record is going to look like over a longer haul. So one of the reasons I'm lower on Cleveland is I just have not liked their draft picks under the Altman era. He's been here like three or four years now. And like they might work out, but I'm just not a big fan of them. And that's such a big role in this. Because like, especially with the lottery is now, is you might be at five, six, or seven. Can you find that one really, really good player in that range? And that remains to be seen. Because right, every GM who's hired thinks he's an awesome drafter. You don't get hired as a GM if you don't have uber confidence in yourself to scout. 
And we'll see who can actually scout of all these guys. I mean, Troy Weaver, he was at Oklahoma City for forever. He made his bones as a scout. I know Troy Weaver is saying, I'm going to scout these drafts so well, it doesn't even matter. I'll pick the star no matter where he is. We'll see if he's right. Right. All right, so let's run down our picks just to, to wrap up here. So at five to one, I have the Wizards at five, Cleveland at four, Minnesota at three, Houston at two, Detroit at one. Rob, what do you have? I have Sacramento at five, Washington at four, Detroit at three, Orlando at two, Minnesota at one. Okay, then I had Orlando at five, Minnesota four, Cleveland three, Houston two, Detroit one. Pretty good. I, I would say that there's a general consensus there that Detroit is pretty bad. <laughs> so uh, I think they are our unfortunate winners here. All right, that's it for us today. We will be back next week, same time, same place. Uh, thank you to John Kerma on production. Uh, we will see you next time.